Growing up as a kid in Canada and having hockey as a second religion nearly, there's a certain culture of toughness, a little subculture in that world of toughness. And so when I turned 18 and for the first time ever was allowed to play in a hockey game without a full cage, I took it off and in the first shift of the first game I was ever allowed to play without a full face shield, I went out to the point to block a shot and deflected a puck into my face and it split wide open and there was blood down my jersey and my jaw was dislocated and I felt awesome. My son, um, Isaac, when he was even a little kid playing hockey at a stick knockout part of his front tooth and he didn't want it repaired, he wanted it taken out so that he could have falsies that he could put in and out so whenever he played hockey everybody would know how tough he is. Now I tell you those stories because within that culture, here's a picture of Ian LaPerriere, a former Philadelphia Flyer, after a game where he took a puck to the face. And notice his mouth sort of broken up by this, but that nose. I mean, that's a lifetime work of being manipulated by fists and pucks. That's tough. I say all that because around it, there was almost a certain pride about what it is that you could endure, right? Whether it's sitting at a hot sauce eating contest or our ability to last longer at an event, demonstrate more stamina, work harder, be tougher, we sort of define our ability to, to articulate our place amongst the crowd by moving ahead of it, by climbing on top of it, by rising above, people are already talking to you now about climbing the ladder in whatever field you get into coming out of this place. We are entering and have to live in a world where it's pulling constantly on our temptations towards pride. A definition and a celebration of our own individual strengths. Well, I'm 44 now, and I get hurt in different ways. And every time someone has asked me, Aaron, what happened to your foot? And I say, I, I broke it. And they say, well, how did you do that? And I want to tell them that I was heading out to the point to block a shot, and it was in the last minute of the game, and I took a puck off my foot for the team, and it shattered. But that's just not the truth. The truth is that I fell down um, stairs right outside the library because I was trying to text and walk at the same time. Um, but that's not very heroic, and there's this little part of me that feels humbled now every time I have to tell that story to somebody else because I feel stupid for doing it, and my 44-year-old old man fragile bones break like they didn't when I was a kid doing the same sort of stuff. Here's actual security footage from Dort cameras of the incident. I went to the other side of campus to get a flu vaccine and on the walk back broke a foot. I have an MRI tomorrow to figure out if I need to have surgery on my foot. The problem is the MRI isn't going to be able to reveal um, beyond what's just wrong with my foot and actually what's wrong with my heart and the pride inside of me that hurts every time I have to tell this story again of how stupid I was. But apparently I'm not alone. I found um, this picture. Um, this is a stairway at um, Utah Valley University. 
Um, I'm wondering maybe we'll implement the same methods here at Dort at some point in time, or maybe workers' comp will make us do so. Um, so you sort of have these varying levels of risk as you enter in. Nobody likes to be humbled. It's a process that we always seem to be completely resistant to. And yet, as we're going to see in the passage we look at today, it's something that Jesus calls us into. Actually invites us to put on. Like that actually means we're supposed to seek it out. The opportunity to be humbled. And more often than not, if we don't seek this out on our own, our God loves us so much that he will humble us. Now hear me well, I'm not suggesting God push me down the stairs. But he loves the moments when me and you get humbled. Because there's power within that. All the virtues and gifts talked about in the New Testament to come upon God's people were promised by Jesus as elements of power. And as much as our world wants to believe otherwise, this truly is the case. So I want to get back to that text with you that we've been looking at and hop back in. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We've looked at the other ones so far. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and we've spent a week looking at these, clothe yourselves, so put on. There's a, there's a responsibility on your part to engage these virtues. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. And I want to suggest to you today that humility might be the rarest of all of these gems in our world today. The forgotten element, perhaps, of the lever that will actually create the greatest possible amount of transformation in any one of our lives. Humility is what allows us to enter into a conversation and seek not so much to be understood, but to understand. Humility recognizes that God is at work in everybody else around us, and each one of them has something to teach us about the uniqueness of what it means to be human and to be in his image. And you have to understand how significant this transformation is in Jesus turning the world upside down. Humilitas, as it was known in the ancient world, was never used as a virtue or a positive word. It was an insult that you said to someone that designated their weakness. It was a derogatory term for someone of lesser stature than you. Jesus invented the virtue of humility. Up until Jesus lived, nobody understood this as a positive thing. It was something that you would avoid. It was something you did not want to be called. And yet it's spoken throughout the New Testament about Jesus as if it's the highest of virtues. Jesus came in humility to tell the world that it's wrong. 
Jesus was the first in all of history to redeem this insult and make it into something beautiful. And I would argue a lever of great power. Here's what I mean. You've often heard this said before, right? Pride comes before the fall, and this all stems from the notion that Christian scholars already since or the early desert fathers who articulated the seven deadly sins sort of always put pride at the top of that list. Pride was the first temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, um, the temptation of Satan towards them, that you could become like God, right? You could reach up, you could climb the ladder. So if you eat this, it won't, you won't actually die. The pro- you'll actually become more like God. And so given into the temptation of pride, they take... They take. See, the movements of growth in the Christian life aren't about taking, they're about receiving. And they got the order backwards. But I want to suggest to you, if it's true throughout Christian history, this reflection that pride is the root of all evil, or pride comes before the fall, then only its inverse, only its opposite could create the opposite effect. If pride comes before the fall, then humility comes before rebirth. Can we truly be transformed without a posture of humility? Until our heart and our lives cry out, I need a Savior. I cannot do this. I need you, Jesus. I surrender. I've been sick and tired of trying to do this on my strength, my way. I need you. When that moment happens in anyone's life, everything becomes possible. Humility is the gateway to transformation. Pride precedes the fall, but humility rebirths. And I think this is so key to think about in this moment that we live right now. When the world is being turned upside down, but for all the wrong reasons, We have a global biological pandemic surrounding us right now. And God willing, at some point in time, we're going to have a vaccine. And the effects of that will be eliminated and all of these seats will be filled again and you won't walk around with a mask on your face and your life will change. But if the pandemic of character doesn't change underneath our mask, And inside of our hearts, then maybe the thin veil and veneer of religiosity that is being stripped away in our anxieties in this moment to reveal our character inside should be able to show us that we need to put on humility to be transformed. So that when one biological pandemic is finally eliminated, that we won't go on to find that there's an even deeper one underneath. One of character. What does Jesus want to change in you and in me right now? Oh, that we would be quick learners and humble ourselves so a God of love won't have to love us so much that he would do it for us. Damon read from the Christological hymn in Philippians 2, and I want to spend just a few minutes reflecting on that with you, too. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, now I want you to hear this like this is being read to you through Paul in this epistle, okay? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing spirit in his any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if Jesus is a blessing to you in any way, shape, or form, it's kind of where he's going here, right? There's the paraphrase. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And do nothing out of selfish ambition Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. C.S. Lewis once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And I think this is an important reflection here, sort of on this passage and the way that Paul's articulating what it means to be like Christ. Jesus didn't move in a movement in his life of humility in order to think less of himself, but to think of himself less. And basically what that means is is there's really a difference here um, in the view of self-change because we're talking right now um, about quantity and not quality. I think we often feel like and are tempted to believe that when we act in humility, we're giving something up. We're allowing someone else to take a position of power or rule over us. It feels like a posture of losing and of submission. It certainly does to the world, and it certainly did until Jesus redefined the term. But you need to understand that Jesus wants us to have power. But which power are you chasing? The one to rule or to transform? The way of Jesus' life teaches us very clearly what he was most after And his definition of power and the power that he promised his people of God when he left and said, Christianity, right? You you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He wasn't talking about ruling power. He's talking about transforming power. Pride can rule, but it cannot transform. Humility can transform. And as the passage goes on, in your relationships now with one another, so I've told you who Jesus is, he says, now let's talk about it with each other. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I want you to look at Christ, and I want you to model this. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So many times when you and I have the opportunity to place ourselves above somebody or to win something, we do. But Christianity provides a different paradigm in the way that we think about our interactions with other people. Jesus had all of the power and authority to do this, but he didn't. He didn't use it to his own advantage. He used it for the advantage of us. 
And we are the recipients of the blessing of Jesus' humility. So hear well what Paul's saying in this passage. You have the ability to enact the transformation in other people's lives because of your humility. Humility is a gift that you give somebody else. In John 10, Jesus says, I have the authority to lay down my own life. I have the authority not to, of course, but I have the authority to lay down my life. You have the authority to lay down your life. You have the authority to lay down your own agenda. You have the authority to die to yourself and live for the other. Not for the purpose of power, but for the purpose of transformation. And I think we see um, a temptation, even in leading Christian voices today, to misconstrue those two things. I have the authority to lay down my life. You do too. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. See the reflexive nature of this? He does it himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we fight and argue and try to find positioning, whether it's with a roommate over dishes or the latest political conversation, I want you to hear this well. Here's the juxtaposition. Pride is concerned with who is right, but humility is concerned with what is right. Jesus being driven by what is right leads him to lay down his own life. Jesus could have sat with all of his knowledge, having been the one who was there at the creation of the world, and embarrassed in debate the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law and everyone else. But Jesus wasn't interested in just simply being right. Jesus wanted to do what was right. And he knew that meant submitting to the will of the Father and laying down his life so that you and I could be free. Can you see the doors that humility opens that pride simply can't do? Pride can win. But what does it win? Now pay attention because here's the swing and this is how humility actually becomes power. Not in the way of the world, but in the way of the kingdom. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. God did it. And God will exalt anyone too who is willing to humble and lower themselves. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. The name of Jesus, the one crucified, naked, mocked by his own people, spat on, beaten, told lies about, that at that name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalts Him, not Jesus Himself. Jesus didn't have to win in the earthly sense because He didn't want the throne in Rome. He wanted His Father's favor. And he wanted your victory over death. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul says, as you've already obeyed, not only in my, as you have always obeyed, 
not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue, I love this, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here's the grace, friends. We're asked to put this on. Continue to work out your salvation. This ongoing process of sanctification involves work on our part. The gospel and the epistles make no mistake about that. And yet in the same sentence, for it is God who works in you. I don't even know how to make sense of this. I'm a theologian and I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do with this. How does this work? God promises to work in us, but God calls us to enter into the work. In some mysterious interaction with the divine, God comes down, rescues us, enters us, prompts us towards new life, and then empowers us to begin that movement towards it. Continue to work out your salvation because it's God who is doing the work. How am I supposed to work at what God's doing the work of? Are you confounded by this too? This is the mystery of transformation. But it's also why and how humility can be powerful. And perhaps that's needed today to create transformation, not only in ourselves, but in people we come into contact with and with the world around us and what the world desperately needs to see from the church right now. Let's finish the text. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I think usually we read this part of the text and this is, comes the application point, right? So we've been told this is all what Jesus has done and now this is how we get to respond and enter into that work. And we're told, you will shine among them like stars. And I think that almost feels like poetic to us when we read that. Stars shine brightly. They're they're aesthetically beautiful in the sky. But what we forget reading a text like this is at this point in time in history, people didn't just enjoy stars because they thought they were pretty. People relied on stars because they didn't have compasses to navigate the direction of where they would go in the middle of the ocean. People align their direction around the stars. They thought they were gods. They directed the course of their lives around what they thought the stars were telling them. Stars don't just look pretty. They set direction. And I really believe that's part of the invitation here too. That the humility and the way that we take on and put on these virtues of Jesus don't just look beautiful to the world, but will actually help it, help it set its direction towards Jesus. This is about kingdom orienteering. Having a heart that points due north and knowing what we're fixed upon. You ask the band to come on up. I want to lead you guys into prayer. We'll sing one song together yet as we close. And when it starts, feel free to rise. Or Actually, let's, let's rise right now in prayer. Lord, as we